fashion transports you. It's a fantasy. It elevates your mood. It brings you joy and happiness. And one day, we're going to laugh and smile and dance again. Hi, everyone. It's Joe. You're listening to Occupational Hazards, a series of candid conversations with some of the most inspiring people I know as they share their path to finding their calling and all the gritty realities of their jobs. Whether you want to demystify your dream job or are someone like me who enjoys getting a peek into other people's work lives, then this is the podcast for you. What is the essence of style? Our next guest has explored that very question over a long and storied fashion styling career that includes runway, editorial, TV slash film, commercial, prenup, celebrity, and personal styling. Sidney App was artistically inclined from a very young age, and he found his calling producing fashion shows for student orgs while completing his degree in business management at the Ateneo de Manila University. He went on to study at Parsons School of Design in New York, followed by a stint in retail merchandising, before a quick styling gig had the industry knocking on his door to pursue styling full-time. The looks he has created for celebrity and prenup clients are all over social media, but you've probably also seen his work in publications like Cosmo, FHM, Good Housekeeping, Lifestyle Asia, Manila Bulletin, Omega. Men's Health, Metro, People Asia, The Philippine Daily Inquirer, The Philippine Star, Preview 17, Star Studio, which awarded him Celebrity Stylist of the Year, The Star Magic Catalog, Yes Magazine, and A Partridge in a Pear Tree. On this episode, Sid gives us a peek behind the scenes of a typical event or shoot. We also discuss finding one's personal style, Zoom dressing, his research into fashion history, and his Zen approach to letting go of possessions. For those army out there, we also discuss the best-dressed member of BTS. Sid also shares his optimistic outlook for what lies ahead, after what's been a very rocky period for the industry. All in all, something cheery to kick off the new year. This episode is dedicated to everyone who has had to start over from scratch this year. Quick note, we recorded this episode while Metro Manila was under a stricter form of lockdown in 2021. As of release date, more industries have been allowed to open up and more businesses allowed to operate, though there are still restrictions due to the Omicron surge. Another note, Sid and I briefly touch on sustainability in this episode, but we really just scratched the surface. So if you're interested in a deeper dive, please check the show notes for links to two podcasts, Fashion No Filter and The Business of Fashion, which have great episodes on this topic. And on a final note, we had planned to release this episode in time for the holidays in December, but we put it on hold in light of the devastation caused by Super Typhoon Odette slash Rai in our hometown, the Philippines. Our featured nonprofit for this episode, Local Lab, is a registered Shargao-based NGO that works with local communities with the goal of creating equal access to sustainable lifestyles and opportunities. With 95% of Shargao Island currently damaged by the storm, they are focusing 
on short-term relief efforts, as well as longer-term plans to rebuild a stronger, more biodiverse, and more climate-resilient island. Local Lab is currently accepting cash and even crypto donations from all over the world for their rebuilding efforts. If you're based in Metro Manila and have clothing and other resources to spare, you can also send in-kind donations until the end of January to their drop-off point in Taguig. Your clothing may find a second life with somebody who really needs it at the moment. You can check out at Local Lab on Instagram. That's at L-O-K-A-L-L-A-B. Local is just the Filipino word for local. Or their link tree, linktr.ee slash local.lab for more info, including coverage of the aftermath of the storm, as well as transparency reports on donations so far. And now back to our episode. And here's Sydney to tell us all about style in the new normal. Hi, Sid. Hey, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? Uh, where are you in your pandemic arc, if you will? Pandemic arc. Well, we're at it again. We're on lockdown again. I'd say I'm used to it. But this time around, um, it's not a big question mark anymore. Like, we know what to expect, you know, what to do. There's no anxiety behind it. So I think people are more equipped this time around. And I feel better going into it again. That's good. I feel like your industry is one that has maybe drastically transformed as a result of the pandemic and everything that's happened. I've been just watching. It's it's award season in the U.S., for instance, and the stylists have had to find a new way of working. How has this whole situation changed the way your day-to-day looks? Uh, first of all, there aren't many jobs that go around. It comes in waves for me, at least, like certain months after lockdown, work started pouring in again. But of course, um, there are a lot of safety requirements being done each time we do a shoot so many tests and limited number of people so that's one aspect about just being safe and doing all the necessary precautions another side is for example there are jobs where I just send the clothes and have the clients fit it on their own and then I'll tell them how to accessorize or I just send a lot of options and then have them try them on more like a virtual fitting. They take photos and send me and I give feedback. That's another thing. And um, I guess a lot of people kind of just do it on their own also. And yeah, so stuff like that, like creating content at home, even the way they take photos of themselves or post online, it's just different now. So maybe you can take us back to what your day would look like pre-pandemic and the type of shoots that you have just to kind of paint a picture because when you talk about productions are you talking about some of the noontime variety shows where some of your clients appear it's because you yeah, style so, clients for those right so i think it's good to see the different types of styling jobs available yes so there's tv production ones that go live every day like those variety shows or talk shows perhaps and also those soap operas or movie productions, and also commercial shoots for advertising, either print or commercial video or 
YouTube content, for example. And also now there are a lot of people also doing engagement shoots for their wedding. So that's another thing. So there are many types of styling jobs available in the market. So for example, pre-pandemic, I would get different jobs on a weekly basis from personal to commercial for TV and engagement shoots. So it would vary day to day what kind of job I would have. Did you also do editorial styling like for spread, oh, yes. fashion spreads? Sorry, I forgot about that, but that's really how I started. So I guess it slipped my mind because print isn't as active as before. But I really grew up in a generation where print was king. And I love reading magazines and I love working for magazines. Even if we work so hard and the pay isn't so much. But I just loved having that creative output. Yeah. So editorial is one. And then I think when we would talk offline, actually, the first time I met you, I remember it was an evening out with some common friends. And I remember you would, you would just come from... I think it was Fashion Week in the Philippines. And or right. Man- it was like, Man- what do they call it? Manila Fashion Week, Philippine Fashion well, Week. So there are different organizations uh, that organize these fashion shows. And also, I guess, independent designers would do the show on their own. And sometimes certain publications would sponsor their shows or certain brands would uh, partner with them to have a showcase. Sure. But yeah, um, a lot of fashion shows were always in the calendar. Yeah, I remember you had you came from one of those shoots and you looked great, but you came and you were joke well half joking. You said, "I'm exhausted. I just dressed a thousand models." I remember the guys being like, "Hey, dream job!" And then the girls were like, "Oh my goodness, tell us like how how what does that even look like?" One thousand. It's probably models. not a thousand. Probably. I think the most I did was a few hundred and it really took like a couple of weeks to prepare. I'm not sure if this is the right one, but if it's the same one, it's for a, for a mall. So they would do like a show for that mall. So it would include a lot of the stores within that mall. So say four models, four looks for each store. And so we would dress up normal people and models and personalities that they assign per brand. So it's like a a communal thing. Like, for example, the show starts brand one and then four models, brand two, four models, something like that. Yeah. Sure. So what would be your role? Because I think people have seen fashion shows like on TV, but I don't think people realize the work that goes behind the scenes of a show. Uh, well, actually, all of those things that you mentioned, the different types of styling, but let's start with the fashion show, right? So you were dressing 100 plus models. From the time you book the job to the time that the models come out on the runway, what is your involvement in every step of the process? So with any job, you ask, um, what is it for? Like, what is the purpose of this fashion show? What is the goal? So you ask if they want it kind of like an editorial feel or a very like everyday kind of feel. You also ask about the concept of the event itself. So you have like a big picture before you even think about the specifics of what you're going to have 
people wear. So if you're aware about the whole event itself, it would help you choose the clothes faster. And then, so for example, you have a big picture of the event already and you go from one store to another. So you ask them, who am I dressing? Who are these models who are going to dress the clothes? So you see them, you assess them. What do they look like? What size do they wear? And if it matches with the store that's assigned to them. And then next you ask the store itself, is there something that you want to promote? Because on the one side, you promote the event itself. But on the other hand, you also promote the brand. So you ask the brand, do you want me to push for something that's new or that's coming? Or do you trust me to do a cohesive look? So you ask these questions and you incorporate it into what they wear. At the end of the day, you also have to make sure it looks good, but you have to please the client. So if they really want certain person to wear a certain item, you do it, but you try to present it in a way that you think looks better. But, you know, I don't have the last say in that. For me, I think the client has the last say. So even if I don't 100% support it, if that's what they want, I will go for that. Next step is you select um, the clothes that you want. You usually select more than what is expected so that when you fit the actual models, you have leeway. If it doesn't work or if it doesn't fit, at least you have backup. And then after they're fitting, you make sure it fits better. Like you have to sew certain things, hem certain hem lines, and make sure they're ironed well. And during the day of the show, you also have control with hair and makeup. You tell them if there's a generic look. Usually for models, it's like one generic look because models should look like a blank canvas, like they all look uniform. But then certain shows, you showcase their individuality. Like sometimes if it's like that, I kind of know the personalities of the models. So I kind of give them clothes that I think they like so that they can sell, quote unquote, the clothes better too. And then once you pick the clothes, are you actually, I'm trying to imagine the backstage, are you also there helping kind of fit and pin and adjust things before yeah. they go out on the runway? Yeah, so on an ideal situation, you'd have a few days way ahead to pre-select the clothes. And then it's either I gather the clothes one by one by myself and collect everything and rearrange everything. And then bring it to the venue. And then once you get to the venue, usually I get extra help. So there are people who will help me iron and steam the clothes and arrange them. And uh, make sure they're in an orderly fashion. If there's time, usually there's not. Um, Usually it's on the same day that you do a fitting with the models. So when you do a fitting, you take a photo of each so that after you fit everyone on the board, you will put the photos of the fittings in chronological order. So also with the stage director and the show director itself, you plan on the flow of the show, like which model will go first, second, third, fourth, and so on. 
And so you will line it up and label it properly so that also all the clothes will be arranged in a certain way. I think also, especially when models have second or third changes, if everyone is wearing just one outfit, then it's good. But then if everyone keeps on changing, that's where madness happens. You know, like as soon as they step off stage, they have to be quick and change into their next outfit right away and make sure everything is worn perfectly. Yeah, so you will see me run around backstage helping everyone fix and wear their clothes and make sure before they step out, they're perfect. Yeah. What about behind the scenes on a magazine shoot? Because you mentioned that that was the world in which you grew up. What would a behind the scenes of that look like from prep to execution? So it's kind of the same formula, right? Like you ask, um, which issue is this for? Our country is not sensitive in terms of seasonality, but also there's a hint of that also. You ask what month it's going to come out and um, the editor. So I've never really worked as an editor in a magazine. I've always been freelance. So usually the editor would ask me to do certain pages And so you ask them, what's the layout of this going to be? Is it, does it come with products or is it just pure editorial? What's the story that would go along with it? Or if it's a cover shoot, is there a certain angle of the celebrity they want to highlight? So you ask all of these things, right? Like, as I said before, you see the big picture before you can properly do your job. Because if I just do my job blindly without seeing the big picture, it might not translate well. So for me, I ask certain questions like this. And then you ask about the venue. Actually, before, I would be the one to book everything, even the makeup artist, the hairstylist, the venue, the photographer. So from the starting point of knowing what is needed of me, also, like, they tell you, like, say, I'll give you eight pages. I need an opener. So you need a spread, something like that. So you know like how many images they really need because you also don't want to waste people's efforts. Like you don't want to shoot incorrectly. So you kind of know what is needed so you know what to do. So I'm also like a producer then. And when I was starting my career, So I would book everyone based on the brief of the shoot itself. I would then source for the clothes everywhere. It's either you ask designers to make certain pieces for you, or you go to stores one by one to source what you need. And then you write to all these brands to pull out the clothes It takes a while, actually. It's more also logistics because imagine from that point of getting the assignment, you have to write to all of these brands. Well, first of all, you have to source. And for example, you list down 10 brands where I'm going to get clothes from. So you write to all of them. This is still in the age of fax machines. So sometimes you would have to fax certain forms also an email and give them a list of the things that you want from their stores. And you would have to wait for them to reply and give you approval on which items you can actually take or how many items you can actually take. 
And then the next is actually getting the items from the store, collating them, rearranging them, and then bringing them to the shoot. And then on the day of the shoot, you direct everyone. You tell the photographer how you want the treatment of the shoot to be, the feel of the shoot. Sometimes you show them photos of shoots that you like or a lighting suggestion or like color grading, for example, if it's a studio shoot or a location shoot, you want that natural light or you want it lit a certain way. So you, you give direction and also for hair and makeup. And even to the model, you usually tell them, well, normally you also have the luxury of having an art director who would do that for you. But if not, Especially in the beginning, I had to do everything. So I would tell the model how to post and how to project and what mood to convey for the shoot. And on top of that, you have to think about everyone's well-being also. You have to order the food. You have to make sure everyone arrives on time. So on top of making sure the clothes are clean and ironed and worn properly and are well taken care of, And then so after the the shoot wraps, you also have to bring back everything that you borrowed back to the designers and the stores. And so if there are damaged goods also, I'd have to pay for it. I'd have to pay for dry cleaning, etc. And then post-production, you have to write down credits. So everything that was worn in the shoot, you have to write down exactly where they're from. Um, give them a proper description and how much they sell for. And then you write all of these information to the editor. The editor usually selects the photos with the photographer. That's yeah. so much work. You know, I think I think people don't realize like how much work goes on behind the scenes of this business of quote unquote image making, right? Because what you described is like you are a production house, you're a director, your wardrobe you feed people so you're kind of craft services in a way and then you're like the stage manager making sure that things run smoothly also along with you know probably also hr in a way because you're also sourcing the people or the model or the talent for the shoot or scouting right so that's a lot what made me kind of curious was the part about how you had to write to the brands because i think today i can imagine People can look at your social media. You have a huge number of followers. They can see your portfolio and the people that you've styled and your current roster of clients. So you have credibility um, just by looking at your Instagram or doing a Google search of your name. But when you were first starting out, how did you convince the brands to agree to lend you the clothes? So I think it's still the same. I still have the right to brands to borrow clothes. But I think sometimes because you know certain people and you've worked with them for a while, it's easier. Like I would do the normal way of emailing, but also I can send them a message saying, I sent you an email of request. I was wondering if you can, you know, speed it up a bit. I have a deadline. I have certain things. But sometimes it doesn't go your way also. So you just have to find a solution. So if you don't get it from... Store number one, you try to get it from store number two. Especially not all styling jobs give you time. Usually it's rushed. So sometimes you go with people also who can give you what you want right now. It's like that. So you have a roster of brands and designers. And 
you know, not every store has the same merchandise or not everyone carries what you need. So you have to be quick into thinking who has what. So for the longest time, I'd always just go out to stores and just be on the lookout on what's out there so that when I actually need it, I know exactly who to ask it from. So that's it. You have to just always be on the lookout for things that you don't even need in case you would need it one day. On the subject of, you know, being on the lookout for these things, I think I'm one of the lucky few who has seen the famous Sydney Yap closet, right? I felt like I was stepping into what I would imagine the Vogue closet is like, because I once had, a, just for the listeners of our pod who are not familiar with the story, I once had a formal event, like a last minute formal event that somebody asked me to go as his plus one. And I had, <laughs> I had like a wardrobe emergency where I needed to accessorize in a way that was completely not how I dress. Because the theme of the event was very kind of over the top. And I'm much more minimalist in, in how I, I dress. So, you know, I remember I was texting all my friends like, oh my goodness, who has all these accessories that I need to borrow? Because I didn't want to go out and buy them. So I was like, who would have all these accessories that I would need? And I, I thought to text you and you were kind enough to let me go over and try on all these. I, I had no idea that you had this big wardrobe. I was just wondering if you maybe had one or two pieces. And you let me into this like magical set of rooms and closets uh, and I felt like you were my fairy godmother for that night so the question I'm leading up to is is that a common practice for stylists to have this just wardrobe of stuff so that when they need it for a job they have these clothes on hand or is that something you did as a result of your experiences not being able to find certain things so you just kind of stocked up so I'm not sure how everyone does it but I, I think most people also have like a wardrobe ready. But it it started exactly how you said it. Because, you know, fashion is seasonal and it's also trend-based. So certain colors are in stores in certain times only. Like, for example, the season, it's all about blush. So everything you see in store is blush. But what if they tell you, I need purple? And you're like, there is nothing remotely close to purple in the stores. You go to 20 different stores, no one has purple. That's really how it started for me. I always get these requirements that are, they don't care on what's out there. They just want it. You know what I mean? Like, um, they just have a certain requirement that they want you to find that's not readily available. So you have to produce it. And so that's, that's how it began. Like I started stocking dresses that I thought were nice period because I know one day I would have a use for it. Like certain colors are popular as requirements. So I would get them. I would get gowns because there's always a, a use for gowns until I built it one by one to its current status. Like even for, for guys, say a normal person would just have a black suit, but you know, there are lots of colors that guys like wearing also. So different shades of gray, different shades of blue. So through the years, I just stocked all of these suits and dresses in different sizes, also shoes and accessories, because sometimes also in shoots, 
um, shoes usually get damaged fast because when you're shooting outdoor and the flooring is rocky and if you pull out uh, a pair of shoes that's new and when you damage it you have to pay for it so instead of that i just buy basic shoes and have them wear whenever it's like an outdoor shoot so it's instead of waiting for me to damage something i'll just buy something ahead interesting But for your clients who do, say, the prenuptial shoots you talked about, do you do styling for brides also on the day of? Like, do they ask you for help choosing the wedding dresses? So my closet started building because of usually celebrity clients or for fashion shoots. But also, so the need for styling also more for the wedding industry. And so the clothes that I have were natural to be used for these engagement shoots. But of course, through the years, I also bought dresses specifically for that market. So all of these came in handy. It was because um, for engagement shoots, it's a personal shoot and they're not celebrities. They can't really promote the clothes. So for me, I don't like borrowing from stores and designers for engagement shoots because they don't have a benefit for it. So I don't know how other people do it. But for me, in my head, I'm going to dress you from the stuff that I own because, you know, it's give and take with a designer. Like, what if I borrow a dress from a designer for a bride and there's no trade-off for them? So I only really borrow from a designer for an engagement shoot if the bride is their client. If, for example, he's really making her wedding gown, then I can tell the girl I can borrow also from the designer if he has something that goes with the theme of your shoot and I think would look good on you. But otherwise, I just use my own stuff. Sure. And um, what was the second part of your question? Oh, the question I was going to ask about for the wedding clients, because it just got me thinking, because you have all these dresses and I know you use them for the engagement shoots well I had two questions really one was have you ever thought about renting them out or letting people borrow them because for instance pre again pre-pandemic it's all going to change post-pandemic but pre-pandemic people were renting from clothing services or just you know wearing the same dress that's fine too I know I have one friend who wears the same dress to every formal event, just so that she doesn't have to worry about it. And then we were teasing her that she was like Astrid from the book Crazy Rich Asians. But Astrid's reason for wearing the same dress was so she wouldn't upstage the bride. <laughs> so no, which is right. totally not my friend's reason. She's like, oh yeah, you know, that's the reason. No, not really. It's just she didn't care so much. But for other, you know, for uh, mostly women, I, I don't know if guys do this also. I can only speak as a straight woman, like my point of view. But For a lot of the women going to these events, you know, it's like you want to wear maybe something different that, you know, makes you feel good, fits the theme of the wedding, whether it's like formal, like less formal, indoor, outdoor, you know, time of day, etc. But you don't want to keep buying clothes. It's, you know, not sustainable and like impractical, right? So a lot of people would borrow from each other, you know, shop their relatives' closets or their friends' closets, but there were runway, rent-the-runway type services that were popping up so you could borrow dresses to wear to these occasions. So since you have such a big collection, I was wondering if you ever thought about 
renting out some of your clothing. So if you're close to me, I'd gladly lend you dresses. I feel like there's more cost per wear, so I feel better that someone else is enjoying the clothes that I bought. But I don't actively promote it, but I've had some clients who've done that already. Like just to attend events, they would come to me, I'll dress them. I would basically rent dresses to them to wear to their events, but I don't really promote it. And then your other question about do I style brides on their wedding day? I've actually had inquiry before about doing that. I usually say no, especially if it's I didn't dress you from the beginning, because I find that if I didn't style you and help you choose your dress from the beginning, then there's no point for me being there with you on the day. Because if you already have a dress and you already have uh, jewelry and you have your hair and makeup people already, what's the point of me going there and telling you um, how to dress up if I don't have real input already? But I've styled clients where I really... From the beginning, from the inception of their dress, I would give them recommendation on which designer to go to or which brands to check out. Then it makes sense for me to be there with you on the same day because I was with you the whole time from beginning to your actual wedding day. Then I would have input with which jewelry to get from your mom's um, safe for Um, which jewelry to buy or which veil to get. And yeah, so it makes sense if I help you decide on your dress from the very beginning. But then if it's just, you just want me on that day, there's really no point. So I usually tell them there's no point. You don't have to hire me. I can help you. Like if I help them with their prenup shoot and they show me their dress, I'll give inputs, but that's it. I don't, like even if they want to pay me to be there and they, I'll, I'll usually discourage them. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about the styling landscape in the Philippines as it relates, or maybe the fashion calendar in the Philippines, because we don't really have four seasons. We just have wet and dry. So it's like rainy season and resort wear, basically. We don't really have that winter, spring, summer, and fall. But In terms of other ways in which the styling or fashion landscape is different in the Philippines versus in other countries, maybe you can talk about the differences in the styling industry. Because for some of us that follow maybe entertainment trade publications, the stylist has been kind of a very interesting or like hot career in the past three, four years when the Hollywood Reporter came out with its annual power stylists ranking and whatnot. But I think they tend to do more red carpet press tour, sometimes street style airport looks for their clients. Can you talk about maybe some of the differences in terms of the types of styling and maybe also how things work behind the scenes? Right. So it's very similar. I think we go through a lot of similar things. But also you have to imagine that their audience is 100 times or even more bigger Um, So their access to brands is also the same. So with us, we only work with the brands that are available locally and our local designers, whereas with them, they can basically choose whichever brand that they want. 
And also another thing to note is that we usually deal with brands directly and designers directly versus in Hollywood, there's usually a PR company that you get in touch with. Sometimes you also go direct with a brand, especially if, say, the celebrity that you're dressing up is an ambassador of that brand, so it's easier. But um, yeah, so there are PR companies that mediate between the brands and the stylist. So there are some reality shows. I'm sure you can check them out. Like they go to a showroom and they have all of these clothes that you choose from and that you pull the clothes from. And you don't need to necessarily go to the stores individually, like just how I described earlier. And yeah, so their audience is the world versus us, the Philippines. So it's just the scale. It's just different. The follow-up question I just have is, I would imagine that for now, right, maybe the scale is smaller. But I think that as the way that perhaps productions are financed and produced and filmed and released, on different distribution channels. It, it used to be that you had maybe films that were targeting one particular audience. And now with everyone kind of moving to these video on demand services like Netflix, Netflix is actually picking up content from places like the Philippines. I would imagine it's only a matter of time before uh, you know you might be asked to style something in a production that actually you'll have a global audience also. <laughs> I would right. imagine. Yeah. yeah, but so also, also YouTube, budget, right? YouTube has. Right, yeah. yeah. And also budget-wise, it's something to consider. Like, how can you compare a Chanel couture dress versus a local designer? I mean, no shade to the local designer, but it's a global brand. It's a global empire that, you know, they don't do really Yeah, the care budget about. is drastically larger. Yeah. Yeah, like one dress is what, $50,000? How are you going to compare that to, you know what I mean? I I do. It's actually, well, it brings up something that I was going to go to kind of some of the issues in the fashion industry. And then I'll get to kind of how you started, because that's really interesting also. But a lot of people, like, I guess, post-pandemic, there has been a question of what is essential, what is not essential. And I guess for you, how has the pandemic made you think about your own industry? So, yeah, so it has been a question that I've been struggling with even way before the pandemic on how relevant fashion still can be. Like even for my own self, like I don't shop as much as I used to. Like I think after some time, I don't know how much stuff you can buy that can still excite you. And so the pandemic kind of highlighted that more. And I think it's also knowing your personal style. Say like um, for me, I have all of these things from 10 to 15 years ago that I still own and I can still wear to this day. It's also because I chose them, not because that they're trendy at the time, but I have them made or I bought them because I liked it. Just, I don't know how to explain it further. But for me, yeah, so I have a lot of these things that I still own, that I still wear, 
from a long time ago because I kind of knew what I really liked and I just didn't follow trends or what was, you know, the it item for that year. So in a way that was clever and wise of me to do so. And I think maybe more people should think that way. You know, you can buy a few things that are trendy, but, you know, buy more things that will last you longer. It doesn't necessarily mean buying more expensive, but just buying things that you think you will enjoy longer and will stand the test of time more. I usually tell people not to buy, you know, classic, the word classic itself. Like, you know, a general classic style does not exactly suit everyone. So you have to think of your personal classic style. Like, are you a suit person? Are you a biker jacket person? Are you a denim jacket person? So you kind of think what you really like and what you think you look great in and what works for your lifestyle and just what you like and what looks good in you and buy more pieces like that. Actually, what you were saying earlier about the global brands versus kind of our local situation it's not necessarily a bad thing, actually, that the scale at which we operate is smaller. Because I think one of the, I mean, we don't have to get into it on this pod because we'll run out of time. We can maybe put a link to the show notes about some podcasts you and I have talked about that focus on these issues. But, you know, there's been a big question about sustainability and the global supply chain, because a lot of these big global brands, not just one in particular, but all the big global brands have run into a lot of criticism for the way they run their businesses in terms of the way they source, the labor, some people call it the modern slavery equivalent, the way that they outsource to certain countries, pay subhuman wages, and then they market up at a higher price, they sell it back to, you know, quote unquote, the Western world, or even global consumers who now have purchasing power and want to spend. So there's that markup and you're not necessarily paying just for craftsmanship, but you're paying for the brand. It's not really the the real cost of the it's not the real cost of the garment. So that's one knock on the global fashion houses, like the big luxury brands. And then for the fast fashion houses, obviously it's kind of the reverse where the garments have become so cheap that it does not also reflect the true cost where it's making people devalue the items because they almost become disposable rather than you know that mentality that you buy something that lasts a long time so there's kind of all these issues well we don't have to get into it now but what i will say is that i really respect actually that you support local designers and i noticed that i've i've gone through i've looked through the photos in your feed and you really try to source locally like you you shop from stores that are near you from smaller brands and i really respect that because i think that that is actually something we need right now. It's just support the smaller brands, support our local designers if we can, the local craftsmen. So I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I think especially before when I was doing editorial, I really made it a point to mix foreign brands um, with local brands, even not designer items. So I would mix high street and foreign fashion brands, uh, local designers, and even cheap items also, like small independent stores. I tried to make a good merchandise mix because I think most people also think that way. 
like you won't be designer head to toe like you know it's all about high low and it's all about how putting things together like in a normal person's closet you know like you would invest in certain pieces and buy trendy items but also buy classic items that are more expensive so it's the same mentality and i don't always do it but i try to incorporate that also and yeah i i love our local designers there's so many talented people and it's good to showcase them and i was going to say about your comment about like so if you check out the collections post pandemic you can see like most brands kind of went back to what their brands are known for kind of like the key looks of each brand like say prada they highlighted the prada logo the inverted triangle and the black nylon and you know you can check out different brands and it's kind of going back to their roots and showcasing what they're really known for versus the past few years maybe that each brand just kind of shocks everyone and give them like a wow factor that would really catch people's attention and would want um to buy those things but now it's kind of going back to the core of their brand yeah i would imagine that they're also reaching back into the archives and looking at like the heritage of the brand because i read somewhere i think it was our consumer behavior professor that told us that in times of uncertainty people want to cling to what is familiar and they want something a bit no- nostalgic that's why in i think during recessions consumer products like cereal brands actually they they use their old logos the old design of the mascot it was to take people back to it like their childhood <laughs> almost so I, i don't know if the same strategy is i guess really. that's almost exactly what happened huh yeah Speaking of taking you back to your childhood, how did you get into fashion? Like what was your first moment where you realized that, you know, this was something that interested you? A, and then B, that this was actually something that could be a career path. I think I've always been interested in fashion, but I think when I was younger, I was more into art, like I was painting. For a while I thought I'd be an architect, but Yeah, I I don't remember what, but I would I think in movies or shows I would just get interested more in the fashion after a while and like I would always doodle and do sketches even in high school but in college so I went to Ateneo and I took up business management and I kind of forgot about fashion for a while and focused on business management but I would be active in some school orgs and we would always do um events and at that time it's always also to do like a a fashion show so I'd always kind of end up producing it since I would I'm the head of the event so I'd always end up just doing it you know because there's a sponsor brand and no one else would do it so I just do it and also for the promotional materials I would stage a shoot, you know, get other people to shoot it and make it kind of like a fashion shoot type of thing for promo materials. So, I guess that was the beginning of it, but I'd never really thought that I would end up in a in a styling career. 
because as I said, ma- at the time, magazines were really king, right? So everyone read magazines. I love reading magazines. So I would do a lot of reports on magazines. And in my head, I never imagined that I would work for one because I didn't think it was viable enough or I don't know. I just didn't think it was uh, a sound career <laughs> at the time. Yeah, so but so after Ateneo, I went to Parsons. I took up varied classes, not just in fashion, but I also took up lighting design and product design. But when I came back, I thought I would focus more on merchandising. So for a while, I was working as a merchandiser, and I thought I would stick to that path. But when you I say merchant, yeah, sorry to interrupt. So, yeah. When you say merchandiser, so, for those who are not familiar with it, what would a merchandiser do? So a merchandiser is, so you work for a brand or a store. So there are many aspects of it. One is visual merchandising. So it also rearrange the store and choose the lighting and choose which items to highlight. In the windows. In the windows. So, but on the bigger scale, it's also planning your merchandising planning ahead what colors you're going to have the next quarter or you plan for the whole year, like for certain categories, what color, what styles, because, you know, you have them manufactured here. So you have to plan ahead. So you have to order, you have to design, you have to have them produced, uh, delivered to the store. So you have to plan this, like how many new styles will you produce what quantity, what sizes, et cetera. So there. Okay. So you thought you were going to do that. And then what happened when you got back from Parsons and from New York to Manila, what changed? Yeah. So when I came back, I was doing just that. I was doing also um, merchandising and visual merchandising. And then I just stumbled upon styling because I was helping a friend with a brand that she was starting with their shoots. And at the time, I was just thinking it's like a one-time deal, you know? Uh, She got all, like, professional models, popular ones at that, professional photographer, popular one at that, hair and makeup, popular ones at that. So I was like, you know, it's maybe it's going to be one of those things where I can say, oh, I styled this legit shoot one time. And then, so I did that, and I also helped them with their press launch editor who saw the PR photos asked who styled the shoot and who styled the show and so they gave my number and it just kind of snowballed from there wow I didn't yeah so I never really decided to become a stylist it just kind of happened and before I knew it I had enough bookings to fill my week so At that point, I said, maybe I am a stylist. Actually, it took me such a long time for me to say out loud that I style because I I don't know if I was in denial or I just didn't feel like I was worthy of the title because I didn't consciously aim for it. Maybe that's why you're so good at what you do because you you were building other skills along the way rather than single mindedly pursuing this one goal like I'm going to be a stylist I'm going to be a stylist and it allowed you to be a bit more well-rounded in terms of all the things that you have to do 
right? Because the actual styling part from what you've described is an important part of it, like having that eye and being able to choose and curate, but actually being organized and the logistics and the relationship management part of it sounds like an equally large part also, which you were... Maybe, maybe that's true. Yeah, and I like the researching, especially before, like um, on certain trends or certain key items. Like I would make a presentation just for myself, just for like a visual representation of how I wanted to shoot to look like. And also like I would do a history. Like say at the beginning, preppy was the look then. So I researched on the origins of the preppy look on why the elements are like that and, you know, its roots in sports and varsity and stuff like that. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know what triggered me, but I would do such presentations just for myself. Like, I never really showed editors. I never really showed anyone else. Just myself. Maybe the photographer, just for the treatment. But yeah, I just did it for me. I think, especially in the beginning, I just liked doing it. Like, I liked the creative process and I liked the visual aspect of it. So I think that's why I really enjoyed doing editorials before. Yeah. What's your favorite part of what you do as a stylist? Oh, yeah. So the creative process, you know, putting things together, um, doing something that's never seen before or uncommon. And yeah, when you see the output and everything went perfectly, I think that's it. Yeah, the process itself and after seeing the output. On the other hand, what is maybe your least favorite part about what you do or the part of your job that to scare away people who are not really serious about it? Well, it's really frustrating not being able to find what you need when you need it. I think that's, that's it. It's the hunt. It's the search for the thing that you need or if things don't fit or... You know, if things break, I don't know. But there's so many things that is frustrating about it, but you have to just go with it, roll with the punches, and you have to deliver no matter what. Like, because there's a deadline. And for example, you're addressing someone and they have to go on stage like in five minutes and the zipper suddenly pops up. Uh, you have to remedy it. It's either you have a backup dress or you saw her on the spot. Like no matter what, she has to be on stage in five minutes. So you have to figure it out. So things like that, you know, it's frustrating. So if everyone has more time to prepare or more budget to prepare for such things, but that's not always the case. So most of the time jobs are rushed with uh, less budget. So you have to just Go with what's given and produce the best that you can produce with the given constraints. Yeah. You know, given that your path was you started out taking a business management course and then you actually went to a pretty well-known fashion school and took courses in design and other complementary fields, but more in the kind of visual art space. Is that a career path you would recommend to other people? Is there a... Yeah, are there recommended courses, classes? Is there a recommended path to get to where you are? 
or does it really completely different for each person? Yeah, it's different for each person, but I do believe that education is very integral, like with any career, like you have to know what you're facing. You have to know fundamentals for you to thrive in. It doesn't necessarily mean a traditional institution like a school, but as long as you educate yourself, like through the years, I've always been interested in fashion. I would always read magazines. I'd always watch documentaries. I'd always look at style.com and check out all the runway photos. So things like that, like you have to educate yourself with art history, with fashion history. If you don't know where fashion has been and you only know the present, you can't just assume it's going to go a certain way. So it's, it's very integral with any career to know where that career has been before, what the current landscape is now for you to see what the future will be. And I do recommend people taking courses, going to school, learning about color theory. I mean, you really can't teach the eye. You know, talent is talent, but you can train yourself to make better choices if you don't have an innate talent. And it's good to guide your talent with these fundamentals. Interesting. Speaking of, uh, you know, it can't be taught Let's say I were one of your clients. If we were to do a little role play exercise, if I approached you just as a regular person that wanted to get styling advice, how would you have that conversation? So I really do this. I have private clients who are not celebrities who just need help in their day-to-day life. So it's either just for an event or a shoot or also for daily life, like, dressing up for work, dressing up for themselves. So I will ask you, how do you want to look like? So there are many things that I would ask. So if it's for a specific event, I'll ask where the event is, who's going, how many people, what image do you want to project, who are you, what aspect of your life are you right now? So I ask such questions like, what do you do? How do you want to present yourself? But if it's not just for an event, I also ask, what kind of clothes do you want? It's very specific, like if it's for work wear or for such events, ask them about their personal like on who their style icons are, like who would they want to dress up like. And I also ask them about their insecurities, especially with their bodies, like, you know, certain bodies that they want to highlight or cover up and so I really assess them also physically like the tone of their skin um, their hair color the shape of their bodies like I really have to dig in so I know how to go about it like sometimes I ask them favorite movies favorite colors just to get to know them more and when I think I know who they want to be or what image they want to project is when I think I know how to do a good job. So when that happens, sometimes I also go to the client's closet and check out what they have. So I know like what kind of direction they wanted to go and sometimes help them edit, like throw stuff out. Or I also tell them to organize their closet a certain way. 
so they can see everything, what items they have and what items they lack and what they need so that when we go to the stores, I know exactly what to look out for. And so when we go to stores, I encourage the clients to just keep on trying stuff because you'll never know until you try. Like some things in theory would look good or will look bad, but in actual, it might be the opposite of what you expected. So just keep on trying different necklines, different hemlines, different silhouettes, colors, a suit, a dress, separates, things like that. Just try everything until we kind of formulate a look that works. Uh, so post-pandemic, I think a lot of people are on Zoom calls, right? Do you ever get questions from either clients or friends? Like, how should I style myself to fit this Zoom window that I'm, I'm going to be appearing on either like a press well, conference or a meeting or something? Yeah, so people have asked me. But so the, the answer is kind of like, there's a thing called banquet dressing. So like for interviews or like when you know when you attend an event, when you sit down and eat, no one's going to see what your skirt looks like. No one's really going to see the bottom half of your outfit. Everyone's going to see your face and the neckline. So you choose something that has a really nice neckline that frames your face or maybe details around the shoulders because that's all that they're going to see. So I think that also applies for Zoom calls. You know, details and colors and design elements that are around the shoulders, that frames your face by the neck, something like that. Uh, That's so interesting. Two things come to mind. One is you mentioned you like to look at the history of fashion and the history of certain looks. I was actually listening to a podcast by a fashion historian. Uh, She's the one who catalogs and presents the collections for the museum at FIT. And she was talking about how she got training because she was a historian by training, an historian by training. And then she actually went and specialized in fashion. And she was saying that if you look at just the way clothing has changed through the years, you know, some people downplay or they don't see the value in it. But then for people who look at the cultural, sociological importance of clothing, it actually can tell you a lot about the society at a particular point in time. So just the parts of the body that get emphasized as well as the way women versus men. Um, Yeah, it's a bit binary, heteronormative, but she mentioned it in terms of women's and men's fashion. So she she was talking about how you can track current events and even political and economic events based on the way the clothing was constructed and based on kind of, you know, like menswear was suddenly now acceptable for women, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I found that really interesting. So I think years from now, when people look back at this period in time, they're probably going to be also looking at, you know, how did the, what people chose to wear evolve during the pandemic, whether it was like more utilitarian or this rise in sports, as people started to emphasize their health more and all that. So I find that part like absolutely fascinating. But on the other hand, you were talking about how the pandemic has also kind of made you rethink the relevance also of what you do. So what would you say to somebody who is just starting to consider this as a career path right now, you know, in the midst of all this uncertainty? Because I'm sure it will also rebound, but maybe rebound not to the way it was before, but another evolution of the industry. But what would you tell somebody who is maybe, you know, a young Sydney app, somebody or who wanted to be the next Sydney app? What would you tell that person? 
just go for it, but also think wisely and think about the future and think about all of these issues in fashion on the pace of fashion and sustainability. And if you can help in any way to resolve these problems. No, I think that's really important. You know what I have noticed? A lot of the mm-hmm. Gen Z, right? They only shop from sustainable brands. It's just that's good. how they are wired as consumers um, right. as a result of the milieu in which they grew up. But also what I did notice is that the fashion brands that are cropping up that are started by Gen Zers have sustainability built in. Now you can argue like how sustainable, but it is something actually that they are factoring in, whether it's using dead stock fabric. I mean, there's a debate on how sustainable that really is, but they're using what is available, um, working with limited resources and also repurposing old garments. Some people are starting businesses where it's uh, the like, there are some people are only doing vintage or shopping secondhand. And I think it's just, there's a shift toward trying to resolve some of these issues, which again, we're not going to yeah, resolve on this long, pod. Uh, yeah, we're, it's, it's a long discussion. We'll put like, more, more links in the show notes. But no, I think that there's already a movement in that direction. But in yeah, line with, but, yeah, sorry, go on. With what I said earlier, I think I'm not telling people to stop buying because it's, you know, it's also an industry that imported. You have to support it somehow. But maybe purchase mindfully, purchase better, not necessarily more expensive, just things that would last longer and things that you will wear for a long time. Yeah. yeah. And you were saying? Oh, no, I, I was just going to say, so that was advice you were giving to people who wanted to be in your shoes. Now, if you had to fill in the blank, don't pursue this path or don't take this job if you blank. What would you put don't, in that blank? Don't think this job if you think it's all glamour. It's nothing but glamorous. The output is glamorous, but the way to get there is really not. You really have to do everything yourself. It's a lot of logistics. You have to get your hands dirty. I put on shoes from clients all the time. Like it's second nature. Like people are weirded out sometimes that I put on shoes for them, but it's part of the job. I help them. I fix everything. Yeah, like you have to be very meticulous. You have to be detail oriented. You have to see all of the flaws. A big part of my job also is to see the flaws. You know, like you see someone. I mean, I don't judge people, but if you ask me to, I can see what's wrong. You know what I mean? Like you have to be on the lookout for what people might nitpick a crease here or a stain there or something that's wrong you know because when especially with celebrities when they step out everyone judges them from head to toe and you have to just be on the lookout for that yeah when you see because everything's on social media now do you ever see critical responses to the way some of your clients that whether private or celebrities do you ever see kind of maybe a negative reaction like oh I don't like this dress or or hey your hair is I don't like your hair you know I mean everyone's entitled to their own opinion but yeah (laughs) how does that make you feel (laughs) sometimes it's not really directed at me but then if I try to search and I can find such comments and sometimes it bothers me because 
you want the best for your clients and you want people to see them in their best light because um, what we do is we're a channel to make them feel the most comfortable and the most beautiful so that they can execute their job of entertaining people well. And if comments like that make them insecure and becomes a hindrance to how they do their job, then it makes me feel horrible that I, you know, one aspect of making them feel beautiful and doing their job well, you just, you know, kind of crushed it. So it kind of does motivate you to do better and have more prep for them to make sure to look their best. But sometimes people just nitpick, even if you yourself think it's perfect and your client feels 100% and still someone will still find fault in it, then it's not healthy anymore. I think before maybe I was obsessed with looking at such comments, but at some point, if I feel good about it, if my client feels good about it, then that's what's important. If it doesn't bother them with any negative criticism, then it's good. As long as they feel great and they do their job well, yeah, it's good. In a way, it's kind of a backhanded compliment because it means that your clients are well, two things. It means one, it means that your clients are so prominent that their audience is so big that a lot of people are actually watching what they do. And number two is that it means someone took the time to actually react, like it evoked the response in them. Maybe not the response that you intended, but because if they really didn't care, they wouldn't even bother to write a comment, yes. right? So it's kind of I guess that's true. Yeah. At least they care enough to look at it and critique it. Yeah. yeah, but of course, obviously, when people when a lot of people comment on a certain look that's really amazing, and you really feel the genuine support for it, of course, it's it's rewarding. Yeah, that's so nice when people can appreciate the work. No. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, we have. I wanted to shift a little bit to our quick fire round because I wanted to just get to know a few of your inspirations and also how you look at style just kind of quick answers the first thing that comes to mind so right. one would be what's the most memorable look red carpet look that you've seen and then that you've styled look that i've seen one example is a designer who did my friend's dress was saying that seeing nicole kidman in chartreuse at the oscars made him want to become a fashion designer Oh, wow. That's really a pivotal thing for them, huh? Yeah. So do you have such a moment? Okay. Well, I I always loved Nicole Kidman's looks on the red carpet before. Every time she gets nominated for an Oscar, not being the trophy wife of Tom Cruise. I just always thought she looked amazing. But I think people will all agree the most photographed moment and memorable fashion red carpet moment was with J-Lo. J J Lo Grammys in her green Versace dress. Was this the Grammys? I forget. I think yes, it was the Grammys. The Grammys. Yeah. I forget if it's it's been twenty or twenty five years later, and she walked the Versace runway in a version of that dress, and she still looks amazing. Yeah, I mean, so I think that's the most iconic red carpet moment. Yeah. The thing with J Lo is she she's like you; she doesn't age. So twenty years later, Lol. she looks exactly the same. I forget if it's 20 or 25 years since that event, but grab it. She looks amazing. Yeah, I all have what she's having, right? 
So that was the most memorable red carpet look. What about the most, do you have a most memorable look you've styled or are they like children and you cannot mention just one? Yeah, I can't mention just one. Okay. Uh, what about dream person to style? Dream person to style. Well, obviously I love BTS and I love Jin. So if I have a chance to dress him, why not? Yeah, let's just put it out into the universe. You know, no ask, right. no get. <laughs> so Exactly. Jin, okay. <laughs> we have a little text group about this. Shout outs to Marga. But we were talking about who was the most stylish member of BTS. Because we, we, I think a lot of our listeners are ARMY. So who do you think, maybe, are they going to come after us for choosing just one? No, I want to hear a stylist's perspective on who do you think is the most stylish member of BTS. Aside from Jin, because he's your favorite. But... <laughs> yeah, who is the most or whose looks do you appreciate? Or maybe one BTS look that you like. If you don't want to choose one of them, just a moment like their Grammy appearance or something where you thought that they really made a style statement. So their red carpet and performance look is really styled by a stylist. So it's not fair to judge, but they always look amazing. So in terms of personal style, though, the members all think J-Hope dresses the best. But for me, the ones that I always appreciate the way they dress is RM and V. Because it's very distinct and different from everyone else. V usually dresses in a more retro vibe. And he likes kind of vintage things and kind of like an old vibe to it. And RM dresses very kind of Japanese street. Like he wears kimonos. He wears very street style. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So I would say RM and V. Okay. And then J-Hope is more, how would you describe I think he's style? very experimental and very kind of out there almost. Like he likes mix and matching kind of out there pieces. And he's definitely very brave and bold with his choices. Yeah. How do you define style? Style is how you present yourself to the world um it's how you interpret what's inside of you outside it's like you you also highlight like a certain aspect of you like when i ask clients what image do you want to portray it's kind of like that it's what feeling what trait what aspect of you you want to highlight yeah, you know, it's funny. I was listening to a podcast uh, with a stylist in preparation for this. I was listening to so many podcasts, interviewing different stylists. And I think one of them was saying, whenever somebody mentions that, oh, fashion's not very important. And then I think this stylist asks them, would you let your mom dress you? And the person would always go like, no, I want to choose my own clothes. So the, the stylist was saying, see, it matters to you what you put on your body. Even if you're not in the fashion industry, like there is a self-expression aspect to it. Exactly. Yeah. So aside from that, what advice would you give to somebody who wanted to build their own signature style or maybe be more stylish, which is not necessarily fashionable, right? As you said, style is more innate, timeless, true to yourself. Fashion is more like what's in the trends, right? But what advice would you give someone who wanted to build their own style? So I would say, look at yourself, look at your body, look at what you want to hide and what you want to highlight, what you like the most about yourself. And then look at 
other people, famous people, how they dress up, whose style do you appreciate the most? And think about why you respond to that. You know, it's a personal discovery, discovering your personal style and it's a journey. And so if you're not ready with your own journey, look at other people's journey and see where they've gone. And if that's the path that you wish to take, try small steps into getting there. And then if you decide it's not for you, go to another direction. So, you know, it's self-discovery. Go to different stores, check out things you like, try them on, put them on, and you'll just evolve eventually and you'll find your own voice and your own personal style, what will work for your personality as well as your body. Cool. What do you think is the, one of the most fashionable movies? Oh, there's so many. There's so many stylized movies. I like Wes Anderson movies are very stylized. I also like the Tom Ford movies, A Single Man and Nocturnal Animals. They're very sleek and stylish and chic. Yeah. And I think also on the other end of the spectrum, movies like Moulin Rouge is a visual treat. So, yeah. yeah. And Tim Burton movies are very signature Tim Burton. So I think yeah. There's a certain aesthetic that, you know, that's very signature. Yeah. Yeah. What about if knock on wood, but if there were an emergency happening, what would be the first article of clothing you would grab and save? Well, you asked really good questions. Huh. Well, I think mm, if you think about sentimentality, I feel like if it's really time to go, it's time to go. So I wouldn't get anything because of that. Maybe I'll just get something practical, like make sure like I'm well covered, you know, like yeah, as a protective gear. Yeah. I read a quote somewhere where this girl had her house burned and she said that God took away all the things that I don't need in my life. So she had no bad feelings about her house being burnt and that really struck a chord with me. And I told myself to live like that. You know, I, I do like nice things. I do like being surrounded by all of the stuff. But when it comes a day that this stuff is taken away from me, I should be ready and I shouldn't cling to them so much. Wow, talk about living in the moment. I like that. And also a good perspective on priorities and what really matters. And accept yeah. It. Also, someone told me like certain things are with you at certain times, and sometimes when you let it go, or sometimes when you lose an article of clothing, and you're like, you feel so bad about it. But someone told me that maybe it's done its time with you, and someone else needed to enjoy these items. Yeah, that's so. That's so nice. Okay, what's your favorite fashion decade? I think 70s because it's a it's a wide spectrum. There's a glam rock aspect to it. There's a retro like denim and hippie aspect to it also. And of course, disco fever. So I think there's a lot to choose from and it's fun. And yeah, I like all the cast trends. Yeah, and glitter and smoking jacket and safari. I think it's also the time that thrived so much like designers like YSL and Karl Lagerfeld thrived in that era. 
and you still see the effects of their work to this day. Yeah. Okay. What inspires you outside of fashion? Well, anything inspires me. Movies, art, television, music, people you see down the street. You know, you get inspired by people you meet, people you don't know. Anything visual, nature, the sky, the sea, architecture, all of this just inspires you. What would you want to be your legacy or how would you like to be remembered in a phrase or a sentence? Um, I don't know. I think not fashion related. I just want people to remember me as a nice person. That's it. Oh, mission accomplished. <laughs> you are a nice person. In, in <laughs> fact, I think one of the best things about you is that, I mean, I think some people that work in fashion, there's a stereotype. I know it's not true for everybody, but there is a stereotype that it's a very kind of exclusive, non-inclusive industry, but you're extremely approachable and real when you talk about these things. So I think, uh, yeah, you are probably going to make a lot of people either want to join it or want to work with you just based on how you are. So, okay. Your vote to play you in the movie about your life. Timothée Chalamet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. They're probably going to... No connection to how he looks. No connection. (laughs) No connection to me. I just love him and he acts very well. And no matter what he does, I love. So... That's it. He dresses quite well also, in my opinion. I don't know if you'd agree. He does. I love his style and he carries clothes really well. Yeah, so uh, watch your back, Jin. (laughs) Second person that Sydney wants (laughs) to style. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Any recommended reading or viewing? Well, if you want to be more well-versed in fashion, I suggest you can watch First Monday of May and also Dior and I and the September issue. These are fashion films that are worth watching and it really tells you a lot on how fashion really works. Yeah. So, Sydney, you know, you mentioned that you are somebody who studies the history of things and the history of fashion in particular. What can we learn from similar moments in the past where maybe there was a lull or fashion was deprioritized, put on hold? Like, What can you tell people who work in this industry or want to enter this industry and don't see a future for it right now? Like, What can we learn from the past? I say for now, maybe pivot a little bit, but hold on to your passion for fashion. Because we're going to come back with a vengeance. You know, yeah. fashion's greatest moments come after such yeah. uncertain times. As with history, with the Great Depression, World Wars, fashion really resurges. And the biggest moments in fashion come after such times. You know, Dior's The New Look came after the World War. And, you know, it's much celebrated, you know. Fashion transports you. It's a fantasy. It elevates your mood. It brings you joy and happiness. And one day, we're going to laugh and smile and dance again. 
I love that ending. That is something we all need right now. So thank you for giving us some hope and inspiration during this time. No, I mean, there's a reason that certain TV series, I've already mentioned this in a previous episode, but I think there's a reason that Bridgerton was like the number one TV show on Netflix because people want escape and they want the fantasy right now. Exactly. It's fantasy. Everyone's in house clothes and sweats and you see them all decked out with this fancy jewelry and all the most exquisite fabrics and elaborate hairstyles. It's worlds apart from what we're actually living and it's an escape. Yeah, I look forward to seeing the projects you're going to be doing in this new normal and then also what projects you will continue to do you know, when things do bounce back. Uh, how can people find you online, Sid? I guess just Instagram at Sydney underscore yeah. Okay, and how can, if people wanted to collaborate or, you know, hire you or even, I don't know if you're taking on people to join your team or work with you or, you know, apprenticeships, but if people wanted to collaborate in any way, they can just DM you on Instagram? Yes. Okay. That works. Okay. So thank you so much for talking us through, you know, your career. What I truly value also is you bring such a pragmatism to what can be looked at as a kind of, like, like you said, like it's, a, it's a glamorous industry, but you've brought a healthy sense of realism, which I think we all need right now as we kind of evaluate our choices and think about the different options ahead of us. So this was super, super useful. And I look forward to seeing all that you will continue to create. Because I think that that is what sets us apart from most species is the fact that we can put new things into the world and we we can create art. So I look very much as what you're doing as art. It's like you're using people's bodies as a canvas or you're, you know, creating a a visual spectacle or a tableau of your work. So I, I hope you get to continue practicing this art or skill. Thank you. I hope so too. Yeah. Big hug and looking forward to chatting with you in person soon. And uh, till then, I'll see you online. And um, I'm, I'm watching all of the things that you post and all of the shoots that you've been styling. So thanks for giving us a backstage peek into those. Thank right. you. Bye, Sid. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Don't forget to like, rate, subscribe, and share with a friend so that others can find the pod as well. Do check out at occupationalhazards.podcast on Instagram, where we have more updates from our guests and some listener feedback. Slide into our DMs. We'd love to hear from you. Catch you next episode.